Welcome to Blackbird episode number 78. My name is James, and today I am talking with author Josh Sabolsky. Josh is, of course, the writer of Second Story Work, along with the host of the upcoming podcast of the same name. He's got a second book coming out, which we will get into in the conversation. I highly recommend checking out his work. He's actually a good libertarian fiction writer, which, you know, I, I, you know how I feel about libertarian art. And if you don't, you're going to hear about it in this conversation. We're also going to get into the Canadian healthcare system, which is a bit of a disaster, contrary to what you may have heard. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Josh Sabolsky. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I just introduced you. The first take is Jason, which everybody on my paid feed gets to hear. But you're actually Josh, and, I, and I'm going to wow. say it, Sibolsky, right? Nailed it. Look at me go. Man, second take. It's, it, this, that's all it takes. We're recording this on a Sunday night, 11, 28, 21, and I think it's going to be published not for another few weeks. So we'll try to stay away from current events. I'm like stacking up all my December interviews so that I don't have to do a whole bunch in December because it's like my birthday month and my partner's birthday month and Christmas and just all the stuff. And like every week, it feels like I've got stuff going on. And it's great because we're not talking about current events. We're talking about your projects and sort of what you've been up to. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks so that they know who we're hearing from? Sure. Uh, I'm Jason, damn it, Josh Sobolski. <laughs> Um I'm a an author from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. So the capital of the great white North. I don't know if we're so great anymore, but it's neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, I uh, released my first book a little under a year and a half ago. Uh, I got a second book that'll be coming out in 2021. My book basically took me 12 years to write. It's loosely, we'll say, I, I like to call it a work of faction because there's a lot of fiction, but there's a lot of fact that are mm. that's mixed in with it. But yeah, it's basically about four guys who moved to Vancouver in 2008. We all know what happened in 2008 if we're, you know, into economics and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically they moved to Vancouver after college, the entire economy collapses. They're scrambling to pay their bills, find jobs, all that good stuff. So they basically start robbing their friends. And from there, it just snowballs into getting into the drug war, which was a big thing in Vancouver circa 2007 to about 2011. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it kind of it, well, it spans that entire period of time, but it basically deals with what was going on in Vancouver. Some of it is truth. Some of it is just uh, a work of my own imagination. That's essentially what the book is. Yeah. Uh, my background, personally, I actually was, uh, I went to school initially for journalism during the lead up to the Iraq war, as well as through the Iraq war. I realized it wasn't for me because I got sick of fighting with people 24-7 about the Iraq war. And then I ended up going into the film industry and it collapsed in 2008, and uh, I couldn't find any work. So from there, I uh, kind of did a bunch of jobs for about 10 years. I uh, got into the the work that I'm currently in now. Basically, now I'm essentially a teacher, but not in a school of any kind. I'm more of like a, I guess, a corporate instructor. Um, oh, and cool. I still do broadcasting. I do hockey broadcasting on the side, and of course, writing books as well. That's basically me. I worked in corporate training for a really long time, and now I work for a learning management company. So uh, that's amazing. 
Yeah, we might we might actually be in the same industry. What did you do in the film industry? I didn't know that about you. I was basically, can I curse? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a bitch. I was a bitch. <laughs> like oh, that's nice. basically what I did. Yeah, I was uh, I got I never actually got to be what they call above the line. So I always stayed below the line, which basically meant the only work I got was was basically day calls. So they would call me out. I'd be a PA, so production assistant. Mm-hmm. So they'd call me out and you'd go to set and they'd be like, yeah, we need you to go a mile from here and you're going to go watch some traffic cones in a parking lot. And then you'd, you'd basically go out and watch traffic cones <laughs> in this parking lot until a generator truck showed up because they'd want to run power to set. So you basically sat there and watched watch these cones to make sure nobody parked there. And if somebody parked there or tried to move the cones, you'd be like, no, 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 you can't do that. Holy and that crap. was basically it. So that was, that was my experience in the film industry. And one day they even let me watch the Jenny truck, which was, <laughs> that was a promotion, I guess. And that was it. That was really all I ever got. I got a few day calls here and there. Uh, it just, uh, the time I moved there, the entire economy collapsed. All the film shoots that were slated to be in Vancouver in 2008, they all got moved south because the state started offering these crazy tax breaks to production companies. Mm-hmm. So they just all went back to California. And Vancouver, at one point, Vancouver was losing like 30 shoots a month for like the span of like four months. So basically all the work dried up in Vancouver. It was crazy. I don't think I knew that about the film industry. You, you think of the film industry as like one of those industries that like gets bigger during recessions and things like that, just because, you know, yeah, I'm maybe there's people who are hurting for money, but there's more people who are looking for, you know, that special treat on the weekends. Did the entire film industry dry up or was it really just in Vancouver? Back then, uh, it was know? mostly in Vancouver and Toronto that it dried up. So Damn. they, uh, it's weird in Canada, Vancouver, Toronto have been the hubs for the film industry for mm-hmm. probably Toronto, probably about 20 years, uh, Vancouver, maybe a touch less, maybe like 17 or 18 years. And they dried up during the recession and it was a boom for California. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, a lot of shoots went back to California, but up here in Canada, actually this, so I don't know if you've ever, if you know, Winnipeg, you're in Minnesota, so you're actually not that far from Winnipeg. But Winnipeg started to boom because Manitoba offered all these tax breaks too. Mm. So a lot of shoots were like, oh, why would we shoot in Vancouver, which is super expensive when we go to Winnipeg and we're going to shoot the same movie. We just have to get, you know, different crew and things like that. So a lot of stuff actually went to Winnipeg. I wasn't going to Winnipeg because Winnipeg is awful. But (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'd rather be unemployed in Vancouver than employed in Winnipeg. Thanks very much. Damn. So, uh, for those of us who have never been to Canada, and we'll, we'll get into we'll get into some meteor topics, but I'm always interested. Um, what's mm-hmm. awful about Winnipeg? Um, well, if you basically there's like four weeks a year that are tolerable in Winnipeg. Um, so if you think about, I'm going to use Josh Smith as an example. So Josh Smith's always talking about how you know where he lives. I was so cold, and it's like unbearable and things like that. And it, it I, I've never been to Iowa, but I'm going to assume it probably is. Winnipeg is probably one of the coldest places on earth. It's it's literally <laughs> wow. like being in Siberia. We went there. We shot a movie in Winnipeg. This is 2007. And uh, at one point, one of the guys... So we're all using those like internal heaters and things like that. We got heaters in our pants and in our you know, jackets oh, wow. and things like that. And the one like we just hear the film spinning, spinning, and then it starts getting slower and slower. And then it stops. And you just hear this click. Oh, and uh, we're like... Oh damn! What happened? And one of the guys on set's like, "Well, it's minus sixty three right now." So <laughs> we're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense." That's um, so that's that's why it sucks is because it's so cold. It's I don't know. It's just not a whole lot to do. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very cheap. So if you're looking for a cheap place to move to, 
that would be it. But there's a lot of crime, a lot of poverty. It's kind of like a liberal American city in, in terms of like their downtown core. Mm-hmm. Vancouver's like that too, to a degree. But uh, Winnipeg's just colder than Vancouver, so that's why it's worse. Do you know, did, did you know that BC doesn't have occupational licensing? Is that still the case? I don't know, actually. That's interesting. I'm trying to think back to like working and things like that. And yeah, I don't recall that ever coming up. Yeah, I worked in the hair salon industry for a long time. That's where I was a corporate trainer, actually. And uh, like the, the stylists there don't have to get licensed, which um, was really surprising. So I looked it up. And actually, as it turns out, I guess they abolished like all occupational licensing, except for, you know, for the ones that are arguably justifiable, like physicians and stuff like that, back in like 08 or 09 or something like that. And there's sort of a test case. But for some reason, it hasn't spread to the rest of Canada or even to the more, you know, libertarian-leaning states here. And I've always thought that was weird because it seems to work really well. Maybe kind of a fun fact, and I'm sure someone will fact-check me if I'm wrong. But you're going to make me look later, so I'll let you know. Yeah, cool. <laughs> that's That's crazy. <laughs> I moved out of there in 2009, so it, it probably, oh, probably was a thing then. when I was there. And I just, or I just, I mean, I wasn't really paying attention to stuff like that back then, but that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your book. I've started I've started it. I've read the first couple of chapters and then I got sucked into this other book that Curtis Yarvin recommended and I've been on it for a couple of months because it's really slow. Your book on the other hand is a little faster paced and more plot driven. So I'd love to I'd love to kind of just get somewhere between the full plot synopsis and what you gave at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Um so you you wanted me to dig in a little bit more? Yeah, talk about it. What's it about and how did you come to write a book like this? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So when I initially started, I actually started writing it just days before I moved out of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So I'd basically been homeless for a few months. Now, I hadn't been your typical homeless that libertarians are arguing about right now on Twitter. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, I I just dated it with a current event. Um, I know, it's fine. Well, (laughs) oh yeah. So basically, Dave Smith is of the opinion that homeless people should not be allowed to shoot heroin in parks. And other people are like, well, you know, if you, every, every crime is including sleeping on benches is enforceable by death. So it's just basically the typical libertarian reductio ad absurdum, which I absolutely detest. And it's why I'm like getting to the point where I'm just no longer even calling myself a libertarian because it's just getting embarrassing to be honest. It's- but Anyway. That's, a, that's a rabbit hole, but we should we should go down that one because that's yeah. actually initially what got me to stop being a libertarian back in like 2015, 2016. And then, oh, wow. goddamn, Dave Smith sucked me back. Actually, Dave and Josh Smith sucked me back in, but All right, um, cool. yeah, let's, let's we'll get into it, that. But, <laughs> yeah, so basically like what had happened was I'd gone home at Christmas. So we're talking 2008. Uh, hadn't been going well. The film industry had collapsed, as I mentioned earlier. So I went home for a couple of weeks. At the time, I was living in an apartment with a roommate. Uh, we both worked at the same place, which was, we worked at a liquor store. And uh, I went home for a couple of weeks. I came back and he was supposed to pick me up at the airport. He didn't. And uh, I was like, oh, what the hell? So I got another friend to pick me up, bring me back to our apartment. I roll into our apartment and there's stacks, just bricks of Coke and heroin next oh, wow. to it, a scale and then stacks of money. And I'm just like, did I come to the right place? Like, is this actually my apartment? I couldn't believe it. So I start frantically calling my roommate and uh, sure enough, he figures out that I'm home and he rushes home. He's like, yeah, dude, I joined a gang. I was like, heads up would have been nice. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm never coming back here. Like I'm moving out today. Um, so basically what happened was I didn't have a place to go. So I couch surfed for basically three months 
And I would, if I couldn't find a couch to, to crash on, I would crash in like a hostel or something like yeah. that. I ended up spending one night in a hotel. So I wasn't your traditional homeless person. But what ended up happening was I got really bored. I got really frustrated. I ended up losing my job as well with the, the whole economy tanking. Mm-hmm. So anyways, one night I'm just sitting in my buddy's apartment. He has to go to work the next day. So he goes to bed. It's like 10 o'clock. I'm like, what am I going to do? I was basically stuck to this couch because it wasn't a very big apartment. So I just grabbed my laptop and I started just writing down what I was going through, like what I felt mentally, what I had kind of seen with my former roommate. Um, I'd run into him a couple of times and I just kind of watched him go from like this mild mannered kid into like running this little <laughs> mini drug empire. So like yeah. he was driving a 1989 Skyline when I met him. And then you know, three months after he starts doing drugs, he's he's driving like an RX-8. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty expensive car. Um, and you just watch like his clothes get nicer and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So I started writing stuff like that down and just jotting down notes. And what I eventually got to was writing this opening, which is actually the opening in the second chapter. And it's basically about this guy, you know, staring down lines of blow kind of trapped in this hotel. And really that's what started the story. And I just kind of wrote from there. And that was initially going to be the first page of the book that little monologue, but it ended up getting getting pushed back. But from there, I wrote for about two years straight. And I eventually got the story to, to where I liked wow. it. And then life kind of hit me. I got into you know trying to build my, my career and stuff like that. So I kind of put the book away for almost three years. And then I injured my back in 2014. I pretty much had nothing to do. Once again, I was confined to a couch or a bed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just picked the book up again and I started writing it. And I hated what I was reading. So I just basically rewrote the whole thing with uh, you know, different voice, really, different characters, things like that. But it was, a, it was a huge change. So I did that for about another two and a half years. And then I went on a two-year search for an editor and ended up from there kind of ending up with what, what we have now. Mm-hmm. The editing process took about two years because my editor had a lot to say about uh, my first writing, oh, which wow. you can imagine with an initial author. Yeah. So what... First of all, why did the why did the hunt for the editor take two years? Um, mostly just me being picky and cheap. Okay. So the first editor I ever went to took a look at the book. So the initial draft of the book that I'd written was 775 pages. Uh, if you've read the book, you know Jesus. it's like 304. Yeah. yeah, it was long. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, when I actually picked it up in 2014, it was like 1,200 pages. <laughs> I was like, oh That's my god, crazy! No one's going to read 1,200 pages of this. Uh, so yeah, it was seven seventy five. So when I would go to editors, they'd be like, you know, if they charge by the page or they charge by the hour, they would look at just the general, like how, you know, the girth of the book. They'd be like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you know, nine thousand bucks, eight thousand bucks. I also, I really wanted to find somebody who kind of got me, somebody who could actually like sit down with and meet yeah. and like you know have a bourbon with and just kind of talk about you know just narcissistically talk about myself, kind of like I'm doing <laughs> right now. Um, so I was like, that was that was the big thing. So it ended up happening that one of my buddies knew somebody who had just edited their first book. And he's like, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you go meet with this guy and just see what oh, you great. think? Um, and this was after like two years of searching for an editor. So really, it was just a stroke of luck that I found him. Um, and he's editing my, my book now as well. But we have a really good rapport. He, he sort of gets my shortcomings. He also gets you know what my strengths are. And I think if you're going to have somebody edit your work, they really need to know your shortcomings because they, mm-hmm. they kind of have to make up that gap to bring you to where you're going to want to be. So uh, that was important. I didn't want it to be sort of this like anonymous editor just going through the motions with my book. So that was, that was kind of important to me. Yeah. It sounds like one of your shortcomings might be wordiness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You think <laughs> I talk a lot? <laughs> no, no, no. I think, you, I, think, I, think you, I think you write a lot. How do you yep. pour out that much 
I mean, I, so I'm terrible at writing fiction. I've never told a story in my life. Like, what's your process? Do you have one? Or does it just come out of you? Uh, yeah, I would say really, I don't know how I wrote the first book. A lot of it, I think, was just luck and kind of having the right people to read it and to sort of mm. assist me with writing it. I learned a lot about storytelling and sort of where you know, things to avoid mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes on the first book that I will never make again, because it's it's one of those things where like you, you learn a lesson, you never forget it. Mm. But yeah, uh, I don't really have a process. I tried to write my second book with the, I think it's called the tree method, which is basically like you branch out your story and you sort of have uh, subplots and things like that branch off from different storylines. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually tried to sit down and write it, I felt like I was confined, like I was stuck in this box. I was like, you know, I wanted to sort of go and do these other things. And then I would look back at the tree and the tree is like waving its branch and be like, no, no, you said you'd go this way. You So you have to go this way. Uh-huh. And for any person who thinks like we do, I don't like being forced to go anyway. Uh, I like the idea of being able to sort of find my own way. So mm-hmm. what ended up being my second book, which is going to be called Clean Juxon, I didn't write it with anything in mind other than the characters. So I had the basically the six main characters, their backstories, and that was it. And I kind of just it was free flowing from there. So there was no branch, no laying out the plot points. I just kind of let it happen organically. If I ask you what your buddy's up to now, will that give away the end of the book? Um, nope. Okay. How's your buddy doing? What's he, what's he doing? Is he still in the gang? Uh, no, he isn't. Um, I, so I haven't talked to him since 2010. Okay. Um, so about, I guess, a year after. So he got at my, so I, I have a lot of friends still in Vancouver uh, mm-hmm. who run into him periodically. My understanding is that he has gone legit. He has a legit job. He wears a suit and tie to work. And as far as they can tell, it's all above board. So by the looks of it, it looks like he got out clean, which is awesome for him. I hope he did. And I hope he stays out. I've always thought it would be cool. And this is this is just this is just me. Ever since I was a kid, I've always thought it would be cool to have like a like a white collar crime job. Um, I'm not going to do it because I'm terrified of getting caught. But, you know, like money laundering and that kind of thing has always been very appealing to me. So, <laughs> so like finding out that you have a buddy who just like happened to, I don't know, join a gang and become a drug dealer is kind of neat to me in a, in a way. You know, as long as, and I'm not going to ask if you ever hurt anybody because that's, that's not my business. But I remember like in seventh grade, I went to a Catholic school, St. Patrick's, and we started the St. Patrick's Mafia. It was like me and five friends. And I was the only one who had like seen Goodfellas and uh, I think Casino was out at the time. And, you know, just a few other Mafia movies, The Godfather, obviously. And I just thought it was the neatest thing in the world other than the, you know, wanton murder and destruction and things like that. Why do you think libertarian art and creative work is so awful? I mean, yeah. your, your, your book is great. At least what I've read of it and the story that you just told, you know, is it sounds it sounds awesome. I mean, you you read Tolkien, who he was, I think, a self-described anarchist, and his stuff is amazing. But at some point, we lost our way. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, well, I would definitely agree that it is awful for the most part. I really think a lot of a lot of it is almost like we're driven by agenda rather than actually telling a good story. Mm-hmm. We want to get these points in. Oh, I got to hit them on the roads. I got to hit them. You know what I mean? Like, I can't let that go. I got to nail them on the roads. And I think that if you go in there with an agenda to sort of say something or like beat somebody over the head with something, you're going to get away from the parts that are going to make your story good. I'm actually flirting with this myself because 
I do want to write something like that, but I also don't want to tell a story that's like uninspired or yeah. that's agenda driven. So I'm kind of uh, dealing with this myself. And I, t- I totally agree with you. Even if you look at like Ayn Rand stuff, not so much her books, because her books, I mean, what I've read, I've liked. But you look at the movies, the, them trying to make Atlas Shrugged oh into, oh my God, like they made, they didn't, the, <laughs> the first terrible. one is, is bad. But they made two more that are somehow even worse. I watched the first two, and then the third one opens up with that, like, dogfight or whatever, like the planes chasing each other. And I just, I turned it off, like, five minutes in. I just didn't finish it. It was awful. It's so bad. The first one is, like, at least it's watchable. Like, they they have professional, like, it's Taylor Schilling and Matthew uh, Marsden in it, who are both pretty talented actors. So at least, like, it's got a decent cast, so you could, they're they're watchable. Uh, You watch the next two, and they're, they're not. But... I, you know, I deal with that all the time. I'm like, why isn't there good? We're, we are creative people. We are people who are sort of outspoken and intelligent. But why is it? Why is the art so bad? Yeah, I am inspired by a few people who are starting to break into the space. You know, uh, Phil Labonte, All That Remains. I forget how long I've I've listened to them, but that's somebody he doesn't really beat you over the head with it. You hear yeah. it in his lyrics from time to time, but he talks about other stuff and that's something that you know libertarians really seem to have a problem with it's like if i write a book i can't have a character that's a statist because that would be going against you know Mm -hmm. my beliefs or whatever but i think part of it is purity too we all try to be pure so we're like oh i can't write a character like that because i'm not a real libertarian then it reminds me a little bit of christian fiction and like christian music especially oh my god oh yeah i used to be really into like christian rock and libertarian rock. I, I've never listened to All That Remains. I'm not I'm not a big metal guy. But I don't know. For some reason, it feels like only lefties are able to pull off like preachy music at this point. You know, I mean, you think back to like the 60s and 70s when folk music was, you know, all the anti-war anthems and stuff like that. All those people were on the left. It just feels artificial trying to fit that wine into libertarian wineskins, if I want to continue the Christian metaphor. Yeah, you you are right. It's weird. You think about us, like we are the anti-war voice nowadays, but yeah. I don't think people care enough about war that we could really write a an anti-war song. Like there's not going to be a, a rage against the machine coming out of our movement, at least not anytime soon. And you couldn't write, I, I don't think, and maybe maybe somebody will do it. And I'm, like I said, I'm not creative enough to even think about this, but like I can't imagine like an anti-lockdown folk song that actually is good. Like I've heard a couple, like the, the, Grant, there are a couple of libertarian musical artists who have tried to do this and they're just, it's so cringy. I don't know. And, and are you going to name names? No, I'm, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I can't remember the names is, is part of the problem. Um, I know some of them that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one thing that I did. I do notice like in, in what I have read of second story work is you don't get preachy. Like it's just telling a story. Do you try to get the message in there somehow or do you not even worry about that? Yeah, in, in parts. I use this example on uh, Adam Nutter's podcast, but it's like, if you watch Seinfeld, there's the episode where Elaine's trying to get a guy to come over to her. And she's like, I don't want to make any big sudden moves. And that's kind of how I feel. It's like if I yeah. am writing a book and all of a sudden it's going, you know, it's my typical writing style and I just throw in like, uh, you know, taxation is theft or something like that. That's going to throw anyone who who reads me, other than the few libertarians that do. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't want to be preachy, but I do want to get the message in there. I try to do it in a way that's subtle and 
I think Tim Moen said it. Um, you, you try to subvert them a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I do. This next book that I've written is about dirty cops. And I don't particularly like the police and the way that they operate, obviously. But I also don't want to beat people over the head with the fact that I don't like the police. Uh, so I didn't want to write characters that were complete scumbags. I tried to write characters that were 3D and show and you know had good qualities as well, even though they're dirty cops. Sure. Um, they did, you know, they were family men. They were funny. They were likable, but they also had this, you know, awful dark side. And you know, one of the characters that was in there was anti-cop, and I would kind of let him say little bits and pieces, but I didn't want to have him in every single scene saying, you know. Dip, you know, just berating the police or talking down the police or things like that. Because at, at some point, it just gets kind of annoying if you're the you know just typical kind of blue pill reader. Sorry, I know mm-hmm. you hate pills, but nah, you know, <laughs> I like the red. I like the red and blue pills. I'm just not as into the black and white and gray and orange and gold. And uh, well, as a Yarvin fan, I guess I have to be into the clear pill, but that's an exception, I think. Anyway. <laughs> First of all, what's the next, uh, not not what's the next, what does the name of your next book, Clean Juxon, mean? Uh, so Clean Juxon, it's kind of a few different things. So Juxon, the word Juxon basically means to go on a 24-hour crime spree. Oh. And the clean, so the book's about dirty cops. So the idea okay. is the clean is obviously them being, you know, clean. The regular police officers who go about their day-to-day, even though that's debatable. Uh, and then the Jackson side is the part that the book kind of deals with. So the book is about six friends who are police officers who every year go on this summer vacation where they go camping. And while they're on this vacation, they rob one bank. So it's essentially a 24-hour crime spree. <laughs> nice. So they, that's okay. the only crime they commit all year. So that's where the Juxon comes in is just from this, this crime spree. Eventually, it escalates to the point where they're robbing more than one bank each time they go because they get greedy like everybody does. Uh, but that's the idea of the title, Clean Juxon. So it's Clean, comma, Juxon. I used to know a monk who once a year would leave the monastery and go down to, like, I think it was Florida, and just have the most insane, like, orgy of gay sex for an entire weekend and then go back to the monastery. And it was just his once a year, like, <laughs> weekend of debauchery. That's what that reminds me of. Isn't, don't the, uh, is it the uh, Amish that, have a name for it. Um, yes, the little season, like once the teenager become, comes of age. Yeah. Uh, uh, I forget the name of it. I remember, it's, yeah, in a, yeah. it's in a movie, they yell it all the time. Oh, uh, Rumspringer, I think it's called. Oh man, I wouldn't have come up with that. This, yeah, it's a, kind of the same difference. Except it's I think only because time... I, can, I can see the, the movie's called Sex Drive. I could see it on my DVD oh. shelf over here. <laughs> and that, that's what it made me actually remember. Yeah, Rumspringer. They keep yelling it in the movie, but that's, that's what it is. So clean Juxon is like these dirty cops who want to who consider themselves clean, but they go on the one 24-hour crime spree. So tell me more about this book. Uh, what, what's the impetus for this one? I know that the the original first one was about your buddy. Is this just kind of out of your brain or is it is it real life stuff? <laughs> no, not so much real life. Um, it's uh, so basically what what made me think of this story was um, my friends and I go on a camping trip every summer together, and we rob. No, I'm just kidding. We don't. We don't do that. Um, <laughs> what, what happened was though we were driving down this small town. Uh, it's actually my hometown, Renfrew. Uh-huh. We were driving down Renfrew, and there's this one street where there's six banks in the span of maybe like a kilometer, and we just happened to be driving through. And one of my buddies is like, "Wouldn't it be crazy if somebody could hit all of these like on the and just you know dash out of town?" And I was like, yeah, that would be wild. 
And then, you know, my kind of autistic brain started just thinking about that over and over. And then we went on this camping trip, like a two day weekend. And, uh, as we're going through it, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this would be the best cover for it. Just like rob the banks, boop, drive out of town, drive to a campsite and just camp out for like a couple of days. Nobody's going to be looking for campers, you know, who robbed the bank. It'd be the best Mm. place to hide. You're kind of hiding in plain sight too. So I thought about that for a while. And it was always this thing in the back of my mind. And that's sort of where the, the story started, at least uh, in my mind. And I kind of grew it from there. Nice. Did you say that you're starting a podcast with the same title as your first book? Did I hear you say that or read it or something? Yeah. Uh, we're starting, uh, what is it? Well, we're starting in January. It's only November now, but we'll say next month for, for your listeners. <laughs> so what's the gist there? Who's we, first of all? Uh, so it's my buddy. Uh, his name's Corey Leckie. I don't know if you ever saw the commercial for Second Story Work, but there was a commercial that was on social media uh, around oh, the time no of the release. So yeah, it's uh, probably got like 40 views on YouTube. It's it's somewhere out there. But yeah, he uh, he made this commercial for it. And uh, he's actually a, a buddy of mine who's a, a filmmaker. Like he, he owns a production company. Uh, we're trying to actually shoot the pilot or at least part of the pilot next summer for Second Story Work because we're going to try to make it into a TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea with the podcast is, uh, for one, we want to... There's there's you know a long list of people that we would like to talk to and use it as kind of a, a means of networking and also obviously promoting his business, promoting my book as well. Yeah, the big thing for me is there's so many people I want to talk to and like pick their brain about certain things. And it's just kind of like... Even if the podcast doesn't go anywhere, the just the sheer amount of stories that I could take away yeah. and, and have for like future use in you know my books and stuff like that would be would be awesome. And then just yeah, getting to talk to cool people is nice as well. It's just a bonus. Do you want to make writing your full time gig if you can? Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, I always said I would write a book by the time I was thirty five. I missed it by three months. Uh, but yeah, that's that's, that's, that's that is that's what good. I want to. It's it's pretty pretty damn close. Uh, my buddy said that. My buddy's like. If you weren't such an idiot, you just would have released the book three months earlier. I'm like, yeah, but it sucked then. <laughs> it sucked. It needed those three months just to get better. Good. But yeah, I do. I really want to make it my full-time gig. Um, and it's, I think, I, I think, and I don't want to be like narcissistic about this, but I think I have the ability to make it my full-time. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if I have the ability to like network and like glad hand and stuff like that to do that part of it. That's where... I'll need a lot of help. I know you talk about like networking a lot. You you did an episode a couple of weeks ago. It was like a solo episode where you talked about wanting to form like a, a kind of a networking group for libertarians. Yeah. And I think that's a good idea because to be honest with you, I we're the worst at networking. I know. Like outside of our own clique, especially, we are just <laughs> bad at it. There's yeah. some, who, some, you know, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but there are some libertarians who are good at it obviously they're the successful ones uh-huh. the super you know, successful you know who's phenomenal at it is top lobster oh yeah dude he is the most extroverted like just walks up and says hi to everybody and i was i was really embarrassed because he he walked up to me at tom woods's 2000 thing and i didn't recognize him like looking at him like i knew he looked familiar but he introduced himself by his first name and i only know knew him as top lobster like i'd heard his name before and stuff but anyway he's really good at it you could tell that he's if he's not already like financially successful, he definitely could be as, you know, one of the sort of shining lights in the libertarian art scene. So, um, Oh yeah. I just messaged him last night to get him to do some work for me actually. Oh really? Great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what he charges. I'm scared to ask. (laughs) Uh, I asked last night. I haven't heard back. (laughs) That's not good. He's probably like, well, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. And he's, he's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I should be having a new logo coming out. I actually, Ryan Bunting, who is your 
competitor in the libertarian fiction space, apparently. Yep. Although, God, y'all's, y'all's writing style and stories and everything are so different that you should probably be, you, actually, you guys could probably like tour together or something like that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, it, what it's like doing like fiction stuff or whatever, but y'all probably have a lot in common. He's redesigning my logo for me because I stole the original logo from a restaurant in North Carolina, and I kind of want to, kind of want to go go legit um, in case I want to put out merch or something like that. Anyway, is it the Blackbird Cafe? Is that what it's called? I think it's called the Blackbird Cafe or Blackbird Restaurant or something like that. All, all, all I know is that they had a cool logo with a blackbird on it, and I took out some of the embellishments on it and just made it my logo. I don't even think if you did like a Google reverse image search, you would come up with both of them side by side because I, I, I really did change it up. But, you know, just to be on the safe side. Super random note that I'll just mention before you ask your next question. The um, Yeah. Oh, I just, <laughs> Top Lobster just messaged me. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, he must have the, uh, one of The only company that ever expressed any interest in my book was near a Blackbird Cafe. Oh really? Uh, like yeah, for publisher. We, we didn't end up. Nothing ended up happening. But they were the only ones who ever actually got back to me when I <laughs> kind of North sent Carolina query letters and things like that. No, they weren't North Carolina. <laughs> it was just a different Blackbird Cafe, different logo too. Uh, but yeah, that's why I said Blackbird Cafe. I'm like, oh, I've heard of one of those. Oh, that's funny. So, what does second story work mean? Where does that come from? Uh, second story work. So, a second story man is somebody who. Uh, is basically a, a B&E artist, somebody who breaks breaks and enters into homes and things like that. So when I started writing this thing, the initial, really the initial crimes that they commit are mostly against their friends. They're breaking and entering into their houses. So I, I basically Google searched what uh, somebody who does that is called. And the, the thing that always popped up was a second story man. So initially I was like, oh, cool. And this is like 2010. I'm like, I'm going to call it second story man. And then I remember watching Breaking Bad I think it's like season five. And there's a point where Mike Armantrout's like, oh yeah, they're second story, man. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, I can't use that now. Someone's just going to tie it into Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. So I better, I better use something else. But I, I didn't want to lose the second story. So eventually I ended up going through it. And I'm like, well, they're really... you know, At some point I was writing and thinking to myself, like they're really putting in second story work. And I just kept saying that over and over. I'm like, ah, that's, that's the title. That makes sense. Point. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. And, you know, naming your podcast after it. It, 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 at the very least, it's a good way to market your book. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, have, so have you found much financial success with the book? I noticed that it's Kindle Unlimited. So I don't even know how that works as far as making money off of it. Uh, you really don't make much money off Kindle Unlimited. It's like, I think it's like half a cent a page or something like that when somebody reads it. It's not very much. Oh, um, okay. But the, so it's, it's by the page. That makes sense. Yeah, so if somebody gets into it and reads 30 pages, uh, you do make like you know 15 cents or or what have you. So yeah, it is by the page. I've had some like pretty deep my second month, I got like a pretty decent check from the Kindle Unlimited. Cool. I was like, I think it was well over 10,000 pages read uh, on my second month, which was pretty cool. The check was not ten thousand dollars, it was significantly less than that. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, you know, it was money, and money is good. I yeah, know every, you know, every, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of paid subscribers on my podcast, but like every time I get the little like, you know, $3.52 or whatever has been, you know, after Substack takes their takes their cut from the $7, you know, it just kind of feels good because I get an email every time it happens. So, you know, it's pretty cool. It kind of adds up. And even if it doesn't add up, you know, it, it just it feels nice to know that people are out there actually consuming your your work, right? 
it is probably the coolest feeling to do something that you love that's that's artistic that's you know a passion of yours mm-hmm. and to have somebody be like yeah i'm going to i'm going to give you my 20 dollars or my you know 7 dollars or whatever it ends up being it's pretty cool cuz they're they're not only signaling to you that you know they like your work they're also signaling to you like keep going i'll i'll yeah. keep giving you this money if you keep doing this which is pretty awesome and that's kind of what inspired me to to write a second book as quickly as i did uh, you know, in less than 12 years. Given that you're, you studied journalism in college, has, has true crime ever appealed to you? I know that that's, that's a little bit, I don't know, it's kind of trendy right now. Yeah. I, I followed true crime a lot of, like a lot during, you know, researching my book and things like that. Mm -hmm. The Vancouver drug war, I was obsessed with it knowing all the characters, like not, I call them characters because to me it's a story, but, uh, basically all the people who were involved in it, that was always super interesting to me. Somebody beat me to the punch to write a book about that. But yeah, that's that's definitely something that I would like. I mean, I don't know what it would be though. There's certain stories that are of interest to me. Uh, but it, I mean, people are so quick. True crime really, like you say, it is something that's so popular. People jump all over it as soon as something happens. It's really hard to be the first one out with a book. I don't know that I would do it justice either. But it, it's definitely something I would be interested in. It's uh, I'm a huge fan of true crime. So... How are you marketing your this book and do you plan on doing anything different with Clean Jackson? So I spent very little money actually marketing this book. I spent less than 200 bucks marketing second story work. There were some things I did that were definitely a, a huge waste of money. Certain things where it's like uh, you put your eBooks for like 99 cents or $1.99 mm. and you would drop like 100 bucks on marketing. So that was one mistake I made. I won't say the company, but I remember dropping 100 bucks and, and they're email list was like 182,000 people. And I think I got like 19 books out of it. So 19 books at 99 cents a shot, having spent $100. It was, uh, I mean, it was nothing. I lost, basically lost 80 bucks on that. Jeez. So those are the types of mistakes I won't make again. My marketing was basically like grassroots, like hitting newspapers, radio stations, podcasts, uh, social media. The other $100 I basically spent all on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just running ads and things like targeted mm-hmm. ads. Um, and that was uh, the bulk of it. The big things for me were, were podcasts. Like I did Josh Smith's podcast and it was my book had been out for like nine months. And the day that I did it, so doing it live, like that that evening, I sold 13 copies of the book. Oh, nice. The next day I sold 12. Yeah. So I think like within that weekend, a few hundred people had watched it. And I bet you like at least 5% of the people who watched it actually bought the book, which was pretty cool. So that was a big one for me. And then I did another podcast out of Pittsburgh, which was like a sports podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that week, my book had only been out for like a couple of weeks. But that week, I sold like 172 copies between Canada and the US. So that was that was huge for me. You know, somebody who's just an independent writer. Mm-hmm. And on your first yeah, book. Yeah, just things too. like that. So yeah, did you, yeah, exactly. Did you self-publish or did you go with a publisher? I self-published, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit. So we were we were set to record this several weeks ago, but you spent some time in the hospital and you wanted to, I know you wanted to talk about sort of the universal healthcare foibles and failures and, and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, here in the States, obviously it's a huge debate and, you know, to be honest, I would probably favor some form of Medicare for all or something like that over the system that we currently have, which is so muddled in red tape and, you know, subsidies that are way more expensive than it would even probably be to 
have some sort of rudimentary universal healthcare system. So, you know, obviously we would advocate for a free market-based healthcare system, but it feels like to me some countries that have universal socialized medicine do it even better than we do in the States without it. So I would love to hear sort of your experience in it. And if you're educated enough to talk about how other countries do it differently from Canada, which I know you guys have social insurance, but uh, you don't have like an NHS similar to the UK, if I'm correct. So, you know, just if you know anything about other models of universal healthcare, sort of compare and contrast those, but start with your experience. Yeah, so you're right. We do have universal healthcare. It's really, I mean, it's it's so misleading that just the title itself, like universal healthcare. People, a lot of Americans that I talk to are like, oh, it must be great to have, you know, healthcare and things like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, growing up, it was nice. Canada at one point had the best healthcare in the world. When I was a kid, our healthcare was incredible. Oh, really? uh, I would go to the hospital. Yeah, I would go to the hospital, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I'd be seeing a doctor. I'd be out of there within an hour. And was um, that socialized or... Time. Was that socialized or or like market based? I, I don't even know what the when, when things changed. Yeah, it was socialized. Okay. Uh, we became socialized medicine, I think, in the sixties, mid sixties, oh, okay. okay. I believe. Yeah, it's been. It's. I, I could be wrong on my dates. Fact check me that about that. But yeah, we brought it in quite a long time ago. So it was. I don't want to say it was in its infancy when I was a kid, but it was. It had been around for a few decades uh, at that point. But it was good when I was a kid. You went in, you saw your doctor. I mean, this could also be the perception of somebody who's a kid at the time and mm-hmm. just the fact that anybody's treating me and we didn't have to pay for it. I'm like, great, this is awesome. As I got older, I started to kind of see the warts of the whole thing. So really, me personally, my first issue with the healthcare system was when I was a teenager. Basically, I grew up with scoliosis. Uh, actually, I have a back brace right now. Let's see. <laughs> so, uh, I don't... Well, I guess technically I still have scoliosis, but... My brother and I both had scoliosis growing up. My father had it. My grandfather had it, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't meet the government of Ontario's, basically like their target for needing an intervention, uh, even though I was, I was essentially bent like this growing up. Yeah. Like I was, I was very curved. I had what's called an S curve. So I looked like this. My brother, who his curve was like slightly more than mine, he met the target for intervention. So for him, he had a surgery when he was 14 years old. He's never had back pain in his life. For me, I've dealt with back pain for basically the last 16 years, like chronic back pain wow. for the last 16 years. Um, so that was kind of my first first experience seeing sort of the warts. Uh, there was no second opinion. It was like, well, he's he's growing curved. And they're like, eh, that's the way it is. So for me, that was that was not great. And then the second big one was my father. My father um, in 2010 uh, became very ill in the summer of 2010. And he went to the hospital eight times uh, over the span of eight weeks. Every week he would go, he'd be like, hey, I'm sick. They'd be like, oh, you have the flu. Go home, sleep it off. He'd come back a week later. He'd be like, hey, I'm still sick. Like I haven't eaten in a week. I, you know, it's uh, this other stomach bug. Just uh, you know, take some gravel, ginger ale, sleep it off. So he did this eight times. Mm-hmm. Finally, on the ninth time, the doctor's like, "Ooh, yeah, it's been a been a while." And my dad's like, "Yeah, I lost forty five pounds in the last two months." They're like, "Well, we're gonna take some looks, you know, a look into you." And then they just started rattling off things that he had. They're like, "Oh yeah, Jeez. you have beaver fever. Oh, you have AIDS." At one point, they told him he had AIDS. No test done. They're just like, "Yeah, we think you have AIDS. We're gonna we're gonna test you for it." And my dad's like freaking out. He's like, "How could I have AIDS? Like, I'm you know, I'm a 51 <laughs> year old man." Like. 
So this just went on. So it went on for another month of this before they finally figured out what was wrong. At this point, my dad had seen like 20 doctors. So Mm -hmm. what ended up happening is he ended up at that point, he had stage four cancer, brain cancer. So they basically admitted him to the hospital. Obviously, they a couple of weeks later, they started doing uh, chemo and things like that. They did chemo for a couple of weeks. And then they're like, yeah, it's not working. So uh, we recommend you go to a hospice. And then it was basically just kicked them out. And then he died shortly after that. Um, So that was where I really, really started to change my outlook when it came to healthcare. Uh, And then... Real quick, is that sort of thing common? Like where the person just keeps going back and going back and going back until it's too late? Yeah, it happens a lot. It's... Well, we'll get into that. There's a lot of defenders of our system, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it is a, a very common thing that people do go to the hospital, get booted out, Go right, you know, back a couple of days later, get booted out again, go back, get booted out. It it happens quite a bit. So, anyways, I'll get to me. So, a couple of years after my father passed away, uh, I hurt my back. So, I'd been dealing with kind of on and off back pain, treating it with like physio and things like that, uh, you know, stretching and all this different stuff. 2013, it got real bad. And what ended up happening for me, I went to the hospital. They're like, oh, you have back pain. Just take some, take some Tylenol, stay out, you know, stay off your feet, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. Two months after, I still have back pain. I'm like, yeah, this is still a problem for me. Like, I, I can't really function. I'm curved. I'm bent over, all this stuff. They're like, oh, yeah. Uh, well, take some physio. I'm like, I have been taking physio. They're, they're, basically, they did nothing. Three months later, I go to Emerge. At this point, I can't do anything. I can't sit. I can't walk. I can't do anything. So this is where it gets serious. They're like, okay, we have to, we have to take it seriously now. And they end up testing me for a whole bunch of different things. They figure out what's wrong with me. And they're like, yeah, we're going to order you an MRI. And I'm bear in mind, I'm in the hospital when this happens. They're like, yeah, we're going to get you an MRI. I'm like, okay, cool. When's that? They're like, oh, we don't know. Go home. <laughs> so they just send me home. So that was in May. I don't get a call for an MRI until August. The whole time, the, the three months or whatever, from May to August, I'm just laying in bed, writing second story work, basically, because I have nothing else I can do. Finally, I get an MRI. And they're like, oh, uh, you know, you have... A, you, you have a ruptured disc, you need surgery, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, when's the surgery? They're like, well, we don't know. Um, Okay, great. Um, So what ends up happening is that's in August. I get hurt again, even worse. So I go back to the surgeon. I'm like, hey, this is worse. And he's like, well, your MRI only shows one disc. So I don't know what the problem is. Uh, Basically, he didn't believe me. Eventually, I go in for surgery. I get put under. They open me up and they realize, oh, he's got two herniated discs. Because they never did anything else to look into me. They just... Mm -hmm. Didn't really trust what I was saying. So they, so didn't, do, having, they, didn't, they didn't do a second MRI the second time you, you got injured? No. No. Okay. They just were like, no, we're already doing the surgery. So yeah. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that freaked my wife out because I was wow. supposed to go for a two-hour surgery. I was under for five hours and they, didn't, they wouldn't tell her anything because she wasn't my wife at the time. So anyways, I had the surgery. Uh, two years later, I hurt my back again. So this is 2017. I hurt my back again. I go to the doctor. I'm like, hey, you know, my back screwed up again. He orders me an MRI. This was in August of 2017. I didn't get an MRI until January of 2019. So a year and a half later. When I get the MRI, it goes to the surgeon. The MRI says specifically on it, consult neurosurgeon, as in like you need back surgery again. And the neurosurgeon goes, yeah, I'm not really impressed. Just do physio. Yeah, like you don't need surgery, basically. (laughs) Like just deal with the pain and try to fix it yourself. Wow. So... For the next, from January until this past September, I dealt with the pain just through physio and like stretching and things like that. So I had chronic pain for the last two and a half years. 
then in, in September of this year, I lost the ability to walk. And that's what put me in the hospital. So I, I went to the hospital and they kicked me out. They did an MRI. They found I had herniated discs um, again still. And it had progressed. They're like, yeah, no, just go home, rest. That's it. So they kicked me out of the hospital. I couldn't even sit at this point. So they wanted to get me in a wheelchair to wheel me to my car. Uh, I'm like, I can't sit. So they basically like forced me into this wheelchair, wheeled me to my car, which I couldn't sit in. So they put me in the trunk of my car. I'm not even joking. <laughs> like they, I have pictures of me in the trunk of my car being driven home from the hospital because I couldn't oh, sit shit. in a chair. Yeah, laying down in the trunk of your car. Uh, it was a van, but whatever. It's still yeah. laying down in the trunk still. of your vehicle. It's crazy because you know people don't think the healthcare system would would do that, but it did. Um, so, anyways, from there, I ended up going back to the hospital a couple of days later, and they finally admitted me after I fought with them for 24 hours to get them to admit me. Uh, because I realized the problem wasn't in my back. It was actually in my hip. Uh, so I fought with them for 24 hours before they finally admitted me. Um, when I got in, I was like, I have problems with my hips. Like I can't walk because of my hips. And they're like, no, it's your back. We can see it on your MRI. You have a back problem. I'm like, no, I don't. So I basically fought with them for like four weeks telling them I have a hip problem. And they just kept looking on my back and being like, no, it's your back. It's your back. It's your back. At the end of it all, they kicked me out of the hospital and sent me to a little hospital in a little town that was near my house. The first day in that hospital, so it's a small town hospital, I go have a meeting with the doctor in this little you know, rinky-dink hospital. And he goes, uh, he reads the notes and he's like, wow, what a disaster there, huh? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it really was. I'm like, he's like, I'm reading the notes. He's like, I argued with them on the phone that they shouldn't send you here. I'm like, no, they, they didn't do anything for me. They literally just told me I was wrong for four weeks, did nothing for me, and then kicked me out. And he goes, yeah. He's like, so what's the problem? I'm like, well, the problem is my hip. I can't walk because of my hips. So he goes, okay, well, let me take a look. And he like does this manual exam or whatever. He's like, okay, I'm going to run some tests. Uh, give me an hour. He goes, and this is sort of showing you the kind of the good side of, of universal healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so I go... I, I go through these tests. He comes back like two hours later. He's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, you got a torn labrum. You got a hip impingement, blah, blah, blah. He's like, uh, you, you're going to need surgery most likely. I referred you to a hip specialist. That was it. So four weeks in a hospital, they do nothing for me. I go to this doctor for like two hours and he's, he's got, you know, consults with specialists and all this stuff lined up. It was, it was just nuts. I still haven't seen, that was like two months ago. I still haven't seen the hip specialist. I'm on a wait list. And sure, it, the wait course. list is like eight months long, but you know, it is what it is. So is the small town doctor just easier to get into because he's less busy? Is that like what the deal was there? And, and more able to give you kind of a white glove treatment? Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. Uh, I, my uh, surgeon, uh, when I was in the big city hospital, never met me once. I didn't even know if it was a male or a female. Somebody came in and they told me the, the doctor's name. And I was like, yeah, I've never met him. And they're like, oh, it's a, it's a she. I was like, oh, cool. I've, I've never met her. I didn't even know that. Um, but yeah, being in the, the small hospital, I think also too, um, he was, I don't know, he just felt like he was more on my level. Like he just yeah. walked in and kind of believed me right away that something was up. Uh, whereas the other doctors just kind of treated me like somebody to be skeptical. It was like yeah. I was like a conspiracy theorist about my own body. And they're just like... <laughs> You don't know it. Um, it was it was strange. It was very strange. That really speaks to the benefits of smaller communities and smaller towns and that sort of thing. Without a doubt, so it sounds like even in in arguably a socialist industry, they're less bureaucratic. Yeah, it was interesting too being in a small town hospital because they they made all of the food 
there. Like it was all homemade. Whereas you went to a big city hospital, uh, everything was basically nuked in a microwave and was was terrible. But like I was eating homemade soups and homemade egg rolls and like all this crazy homemade food in this little... It The whole time I just kept thinking, I'm like, this is why we need smaller communities because... Mm-hmm you know, you, this is how you get handled is this way. Uh, even within this, like you say, this socialist system, it's so much better in this little tiny hospital than it was in this big city hospital. We can get into, uh, comparing can like Canada and, and that to other countries as well. If you want to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in Canada, we, I mentioned that we used to have the best healthcare system in the world. That wasn't that long ago. It was like 20 years ago that we were the best in the world. We've really slipped. We're 32nd in the world right now. And we spend, I believe we spend the fourth most per person on healthcare. And we actually, so we have, I don't know how it is in the state, but we do it by province, which is essentially a state. So the federal government allocates the money and then the provinces are responsible to actually distribute like healthcare and education and things like that. Yeah. Which in the United States, that would never be the case. I think that it would, if we were to do it, the more local, the better I think though, like there's some state, like I think Delaware or Vermont, maybe one of the states tried to implement some kind of socialized medicine and it crashed and burned fantastically. So, you know, I mean, I guess there's something to be said for making it centralized because those tiny states like Vermont would get the same per capita money probably as a bigger state. I don't, I don't really know how it would work, but anyway, yeah, I I think the provincial provision of it is probably more efficient at the very least. So anyway, keep keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. I would like it to be all the way down to, you know, the individual or, Mm -hmm. you know, at the very least the town or the city that you live in, but yeah, it's, it's not the way it is. Um, But it it is better that it's provincially rather than federally. So that, that's sort of how we work. Now I I can't speak to how it works in places like France and things like that. What I do know about a lot of, um, you know, Scandinavian and European countries that do have better healthcare is they do, they do have a mix of of public and private. Um, so like places like Sweden, Switzerland, countries like that, Norway, Denmark. That's something that people don't like to talk about. Is that there is a mix. Uh, you have the public option, which basically gives you you know up to this, and then you can buy your your private option, which buys you sort of like the Cadillac of healthcare. Mm. Um, and if you look at the systems that are the best in the world, they are pretty much all this mix of of public and private. Um, there's obviously no private option that's top of the list because there is no private healthcare system in the world that's you know what we would want to see. Sure. But the ones that are up there are much closer to what we would want than you know what you would consider like universal healthcare. Um, I always say that like with Canada, we're we're socialist healthcare, uh, and if you look at the states, you're fascist healthcare. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't like when I say that, it's but true, to though. me, it's it's perfect example. Yeah. Uh, that is the one nice thing about Canada, and our I I think our system is is better than yours because you don't have the corporations kind of being introduced into it, yeah. uh, which are you know basically mini governments that are also trying to pull it in a profit. So we kind of avoid that whole thing, but it's definitely not the ideal system that that I would want. And for Americans who think it is the system that they would want, it's really not. In Minnesota, for profit healthcare, or at the very least, for-profit health insurance is illegal. So all of the insurance companies, and there's a ton of insurance companies, I don't know if they're based here in the Twin Cities, but they certainly have big offices here in the Twin Cities, and they all have a for-profit division and a non-profit division. I don't know if they operate any differently from one another because not-for-profit, I mean, there's so much wiggle room as far as what kind of, you know, non-profit, quote-unquote, you can bring in. 
like I know the CEOs are still making a shit ton of money and, you know, there's still just a huge bureaucracy in the for-profit sector. So yeah, it's a huge mess. So there are there no private hospitals at all in Canada? Uh, private hospitals, no. There are private clinics that you can go to. So when you go see a doctor, they have a private clinic, but they basically would take what's called OHIP, which is the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. Okay. They would take OHIP from... So the government would basically pay the doctor for the visit to you. Uh, they have a few different options of how it works. Some doctors are on like a subscription basis. So they take a, a monthly amount for each patient, regardless of whether they see them. And then there's some doctors that take a per visit amount for every client. So they can bill two different ways, uh, but they don't have to have a team of uh, you know administrators like they would in the States yeah. uh, for a lot of places where it's like, what is it like 12 administrators to one doctor or something, something like that? Like we don't, crazy we don't like have that, yeah. yeah, it's wild. So that's even more socialized than the UK. The UK has private hospitals that you know rich people can go to. Is that right? We have, uh, yeah. so we do have some private things that you can go to. So for example, uh, if you need to get like a scope done or something like that, there's private clinics for that. Uh, if you need to get an x-ray done, there's private clinics for that as well. But yeah, anything that's like uh, massage therapy or like physical therapy of any kind, those are all private clinics. So yeah, you can go to certain things. Uh, but for the most part, if you go to get an MRI or you're going to get surgery or you're going for a hospital visit, you're within the public system. Hmm. Okay. So is massage therapy considered healthcare? Like is, is that paid for by the by the government? No, they don't. Well, I'm sure some people get it paid for, but for the uh, most part, that's through your private. Uh, you would get a referral from uh, like your MD or whatever, and oh. uh, you could go get treated by a massage therapist. Down, a real, down, not a, a real massage therapist. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, no, down here, like my doctor, I tried to get him to refer me to a massage therapist to see if my insurance would pay for it. And he doesn't do referrals for massage. Oh, really? Yeah, massage is more of a luxury here. It's like, a, you know, you go to, it's like all the massage therapy clinics and stuff are set up like spas. They've got the, towel warmers and hot rocks and all that stuff. I've never been to a like medical massage. Chiropractic is different. You can like insurance covers chiropractic usually and you can get a referral and stuff like that, but not massage. That's interesting. Earlier we were talking kind of about the lack of bureaucracy in smaller towns. And it reminded me of Shane Hazel. Do you listen to Shane's podcast at all? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it reminded me of how he kind of uh, lobbied his local police department to stopped doing basically some cop had pulled over one of his friends for driving while black and call me an SJW or woke or whatever. But that's like a thing. Cops pull over black people for no reason a lot. So he was able to lobby his, his local police chief and the mayor to basically decree that we're no longer going to be pulling people over for no reason. Like if they're not speeding and they're not in a stolen car or whatever, they're going to go about their business. Where do you think the like proper and, you know, I, I rolled my eyes when I said that and the people listening can't see it. But the, the you know, like where should libertarians fall on that kind of thing? We mentioned the park bench thing earlier too, because that's kind of a controversy right here today on November 28th, 2021. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of a longstanding one. I mean, the Dave Smith has been talking about the paper or essay that Rothbard wrote back in the 90s about this, where Rothbard and Dave want the cops to be kind of ruthless against quote unquote, vagrants and, and, and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, uh, uh, Sal Mayweather or some of the Lulberts in the Libertarian Party are more like, oh, the, any law will be enforced by death. So, you know, you, if you want to sentence people to, homeless people to death for sleeping on a park bench, then sure, uh, unleash the cops ruthlessly. Where do you think the like, proper way to land on that is, in your opinion? 
Oh man, that's a tough question. Uh, I remember that episode. Shane talked about that on your episode on your uh, show, right? It was he it was did. Buddy yeah. was driving like a fancy vehicle, right? Yep. Yeah, that's so hard. Um, for me, a lot of the issues come down to like a case by case basis, and I know that's kind of a cop out answer, yeah. but there are some things where like you just I really don't think force is the answer, and like you know having sicken the police on people is really going to be the answer. But what you have to ask yourself, like, let's just say I took my kids to, I mean, I do, I take my kids to playgrounds all the time. If there was a guy shooting up heroin on the playground, would I want the cops to go in there? Now that's me living in reality. Yeah, I probably would. Even even though, you know, even something that's a little bit more benign, like, you know, taking a leak behind a trash can or something like that, which I've seen on the streets here in Minnesota. I mean, we were, we were doing something downtown, just walking, walking in downtown Minneapolis and, this dude, I don't, I don't remember if he took a shit or a piss, but he was next to a dumpster behind a building and just for all the world to see. And, uh, no, it had to, he had to have been shitting because he had his pants all the way down. And it was just so, it was just so weird and gross and foreign. Like, I, I know it's not as bad here as it is in like San Francisco and other places, but I don't know if I would want him to necessarily be arrested for that. But like, I want somebody to say, Hey, cut that shit out. That's gross. Like, I, I, I yeah, it's it's a, it's such a it's tough. such a tough thing. It's tough because like you do come across these things with kids too. Like when you're when you're parenting your kid, and you have to really walk this fine line of do I do I want to fight this battle? Like, is this the one I want to fight yeah. with my kid? You know, it's seven o'clock at night when I'm trying to get them to go to bed. Um, you know, them if, if you take that sort of example and bring it into the real world, do I want the cops to fight the battle where? They're, you know, somebody shooting heroin in the park. Yeah, I probably do. Mm. Um, I don't want them to go to jail or be locked in a cage or anything like that. And I'm probably a bad libertarian for saying this, but I do want them to be escorted out of that park, um, preferably without the use of of violence. Uh, Now, when it comes to the shitting behind a dumpster... I don't, I don't think I would want it to be that far, but you, you can't just let, let that behavior go either. You can't just be like, no, no, that's acceptable because we don't want to violate principles. No, no, no. He, he can, he can take a dump behind the dumpster because our principles are more important than anything else. And we just Mm -hmm. have to abide by them. That's, that is living in the real world. And that is something where pretty much everyone on earth is like, somebody needs to do something about that. And in most cases, people's default is the police, but I don't know. It's so hard. I watch the arguments go and I get why people have them about this kind of stuff, but I'm yeah. just like, we're so lost in the weeds with this kind of thing. Like arguing about that, there's, there's you know, bigger fish to fry. I know. And, cliche. And so I would say that it's very unrealistic that a homeless person is going to get shot by the cops because they fear for their lives. That doesn't happen nearly as often as, you know, certain activist groups and stuff would have us believe. And it certainly doesn't happen to people who are peacefully sleeping on a park bench. I mean, it's just not, it's just not something that happens. Yeah. On the other hand, so, so I would say that that argument, you know, oh, every, every crime is enforceable by death. Okay. Yeah. Technically that's correct. It's a reductio ad absurdum, which libertarians love to use, but we also love our uh, like propositions to absurdum where like, you know, oh, oh, all you have to do is privatize the parks and then, you know, you can hire your private security force to yeah. ruthlessly enforce your rules, which, I mean, that's also absurd. And so that when these arguments like get out into the public, like sure, when you're crafting policy, I guess, or I mean, a philosophy, that's fine. But when you're crafting policy, it makes us look absurd because, you know, I mean, it is absurd. So you said that in like 2015 and 16, you kind of stopped identifying as libertarian, I guess. Where did you go? 
Oh, you'll, you'll hate this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did. I really did. The lead up to the lead up to Gary Johnson really turned me off. Everything that was going on and kind of the splinter in the in the LP. I mean, I was one of those people who thought that the Libertarian Party actually represented libertarians, right. and seeing the craziness and uh, the whole like, what's next? A license to make toast in your own that whole thing. That was it for me. I was like, nope, checking out. See you guys yeah, later. Like okay. that's it. So it was the absurdity. Uh, yeah, it was. I'm yeah. like, we are, we are goddamn clowns. We really are. Uh, that was kind of it. And then I, I kind of got behind Bernie Sanders. I wasn't like all the way behind him because I, I always felt he was, you know, he would talk a big game and I'd be like, okay, he's, he's just that. He's talk. Uh, I don't, when push comes to shove, I can't see him actually like having any force behind him or mm. having a spine or anything like that. And then sure enough, the whole, uh, you know, rigging it for Hillary. And he's just like, I endorse Hillary Clinton. And I was like, all right, I didn't do it all along this, this guy. Yeah. Um, so then I just kind of went nowhere. Uh, I didn't, I was like, all right, I'm done with this whole thing. I don't really care. I'm just going to live my life and do my thing. And then somebody sent me the link to Dave Smith on Rogan. And I was like, I kind of laughed when I saw it. Cause it said the clip said the libertarian comic. And I was like, that's hilarious. <laughs> like the, what an idiot. And then I watched it. And I was like, Oh damn, this guy has a lot of good stuff to say. Yeah. So then I watched a couple more clips of his, uh, different things, him talking to some different people. And then probably I joined, I forget what group I joined, but then Josh Smith messaged me and, uh, they, they were setting up the, the Mises caucus. And then probably a week later, Michael Heiss messaged me. And the group was like at 100 people, maybe 150 people. And they were just messaging to recruit or whatever. And uh, I liked what both of them had to say. And that's kind of what brought me back between all three of them. But um, yeah, that was where I got lost was, was 2015, 2016. I came back pretty quick though. Cool. So if you were in the States, would you be an LP member at this point, do you think? Uh, probably. I probably would be, even though I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any political solutions to any of our yeah. problems. I think it is a good a good medium to message with. That's kind of where I'm at too. I, and I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, every time I, every time I talk, I have like a different, a different position on this. Actually, uh, Jacob Winograd from Daniel three biblical anarchy made fun of me that I'm basically my ideological positions. Uh, it can be predicted with one of those little paper fold up things that you made in elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> the little fortune teller device. Cause I do, I, I don't know what the answers are. I know what the problems are and I see all the, different proposed solutions and they all sound fine to me. Like I, I don't, I I'm, you know, I'm just as sympathetic to the wealth power and influence as I am to political means in the GOP, as I am to political means in the LP, uh, maybe not the political means in the LP. I, I, I think that getting a libertarian elected to a position of any sort of power is almost impossible. And the libertarians who get elected to positions of, you know, just administrative work, you know, like the, like the, the county clerk in DeKalb, Illinois, everybody made a big deal out of that, that Sasha, Sasha Cohen. And those people who get elected to those positions tend to be so on the progressive end of the spectrum as to be indistinguishable from an actual progressive. And to me, progressivism is the opposite of libertarianism. So like, I just don't have any hope for the political stuff, but the messaging, I think you're probably right. Um, when people Google libertarian, I want them to have a good, firm, hardcore search result, I guess. Like, you know, I want the Mises Institute to be up there and I want the Libertarian Party, which will be the top search result to, you know, really carry the the actual message and not this progressive, 
not not progressivism and not pie in the sky. Yeah, we're going to become president someday type stuff. Like it just it just feels like LARPing at that point. Yeah, we really when it comes to like the LP and things like that, we really need to stop lying to ourselves, but also yeah. everybody else. It's like if you just vote for us, you're voting. Stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, who? I think Michael Malice said it. He's like, he's like, if you get if if Dave was to get into the LP, like to be the you know the candidate for the LP, and I was running social media like the Twitter, we could probably get to like ten to fifteen percent. But he says like could probably. Yeah, they could probably, you know, like he's, he's not lying when he says that, but the odds of it being enough to get them to the debate, even getting to 10 to 15%, they're probably still not even going to get onto the debate stage. Like that really is a pie in the sky thing. They will never let Dave Smith get onto the debate stage yeah. ever. They would just not. He is far too dangerous to get there. Um, because I mean, all you have to do is watch five minutes of his show and go, this guy would destroy anybody. Yeah, from well, either party. And it's because he doesn't make arguments like privatize the parks. Like he actually has answers to questions. That's the, I think back in the 80s, the big thing was privatize the trash service. That was like what libertarians were arguing about. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, sure, there's there's a, a suburb of Minneapolis that has an entire, almost entirely libertarian city council and they have private trash collection. But like, so what? It's exactly the same as with city trash collection. Like, it's, there's no difference. You, your trash gets picked up on Tuesday and Friday, and, and that's it. You don't even think about it. Same with parks. I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't like, I don't, I, I like libertarian philosophy a lot better than libertarian political policy, I guess. It really, I mean, the philosophy is is tremendous. In reality, I mean... I get, I'll give you an example. So I actually live in a completely private subdivision. Uh, I shouldn't say completely private, mostly private subdivision. So we have private roads, believe it or not. Wow. We have roads without the state. Uh, <laughs> I actually run our board that takes care of our roads, our sewers, our water and everything like that. And one of my buddies one time asked me, he's like, why, do you, why are you getting involved in that? I'm like, I get involved with it. So when people say who will build the roads, I tell them that I'll build the damn roads. Because I I, built, I have the roads here. I take care of the roads in my own subdivision. Um, anyways, so we, ha- we have our own water, our own sewer. And this is for our entire subdivision, our own mm-hmm. roads. Uh, we take care of like snow removal. We take care of like maintaining a road. We do all that stuff. Sidewalks, everything. The only thing the city really does for us um, is um, they come and get our recycling and our garbage. That's basically it. Because we don't huh. have a private dump to take it to. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we're completely off the grid. But it operates the exact same way as the government does um, in terms of like, we still got to pay for our water. We still got to pay for our sewer. The only difference is really, and this is something that's important to us and kind of like one of our big points is that there's nobody in the middle, like no bureaucrat in the middle who's taking a huge sum of money out of what mm. we're putting in. What we put in gets used. There's nobody like myself and the other members of the board, we're all volunteers. So I guess that's in reality, it's a good way to do it. But I mean, you still get a bill. You still pay essentially. I mean, it's money. It's not taxes. It's just going to pay your sure. water bill and your sewer bill or whatever. But uh, it does function. It's just a major headache for the people who volunteer to take care of it, which is me and two other people. How did that start? Do you know the history of the subdivision being privatized? Or I mean, I'm guessing that you're not like completely seceded from the from the municipal government, but no, we're not. It's it's a weird dynamic. So what happened? I'm I'm gonna 
Some of this I don't know for sure, but I'll say it anyways. Um, It's kind of like word of mouth or gossip, whatever you want to say. Basically, what happened was the city of Ottawa wanted to expand, uh, but didn't have the infrastructure in place to actually expand. They didn't want to spend the money. Uh, So it was an election year and the, the politicians were running a surplus. So rather than blow through their surplus to... Uh, put out the infrastructure, they allowed this development to happen, provided that the land developer actually put the infrastructure in themselves. So basically, the land developer put all the infrastructure in, so the sewers, the roads, all of that stuff, and then basically took the cost of it, and rather than putting it onto the city, put it onto the community itself, and then the community is run under a board. Uh, It's kind of like... It's a gated community without the gate, basically. Like We have all our own things, but we don't have some gate to keep people out. So we've we'll have a homeless problem someday probably <laughs> and no, and no means to get rid of them. That's pretty cool. So did you, did you consciously seek that out or did it just fortuitously you found a house in this, what turned out to be a private subdivision? Uh, it was basically uh, kind of a stroke of luck. Um, we, we were living in the city, city of Ottawa uh, and we just kind of wanted to get out and into the country. Um, and for, I mean, I don't have a huge lot, but I've, probably about a quarter acre property, which is good enough for, for me. Um, and this was an opportunity to own a a little bit of property and, uh, have a nice spot that was close to the city, but out of the city. Um, so that's what we, we found and that's what we bought. Awesome. Yeah. That I've been looking at houses and a quarter acre is about the smallest is uh, that I want to live on. All the city lots are like a 10th of an acre, which is just, it's not even big enough for me to like feel okay with my dog running around in the yard. Like I feel like he needs a little bit more space than that. It's crazy. I mean, the cities are unlivable for people now. Yeah. I'm counting the days that I can that I can get out of here. You know, I mean, it's not, I guess Minneapolis, maybe because I've been here for so long and I don't really, I don't really get out much. Like I'm 38 now. So it's not like I'm hanging out in the nightlife or anything like that where, you know, I mean, downtown Minneapolis, I guess there's shootings there almost every night at this point. But I do, I mean, you know, I kind of live in the hood, like it's not the nicest neighborhood, but I've never really witnessed crime or been the victim of crime or anything like that. It might just be a matter of time before I am, but the, the, the space issue and the, like, I can't grow a garden or like own a chicken if I want to, or, or, or just, you know, any of that stuff. And I don't know my neighbors. I would like to, I would like to have just like kind of a better community feel if I can find a private subdivision. I don't even know if that's legal in Minnesota, but (laughs) I don't, I don't even know how it ended up here. It's funny you mentioned chickens. So the guy who lives behind me has probably 15 chickens. Like they nice. just roam around the property. Every time I open my window and I see them, I feel like I get this warm, fuzzy feeling, yeah. even though I know what the fate of those chickens is. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, uh, kind of. And then I look at my front door and my neighbor in front of me, it's kind of to the side, he also has chickens and they're just roaming around. Nobody yeah. cares. Every, even though we're in the yeah. subdivision where we can see each other, everybody's like, yeah, good for you. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. The city of Minneapolis allows chickens. I don't think they allow roosters, but you can have the egg laying chickens. I think you can have up to like four or something like that, but you have to go and get permission from your neighbors first, which I think is just hilarious. You have to go door to door and like say, Hey, will you let me have chickens? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is hilarious. I don't know. That's just really funny to me. My ex roommate had a couple of chickens that he kept inside, which is disgusting. But, you know, like I said, our, our lots are so small that he can really keep them in the yard at all because uh, yeah. it, dupl- it was a duplex and there was another family living downstairs. So, you know. Um, all right, cool. So is there anything else you want to you talk about before we, before we close out? I actually, uh, it's funny. I was talking to my wife earlier today um, about you and uh, you have a doppelganger. 
who is one of my best friends. I get that a lot, <laughs> actually. I, do I you hear actually? That I, I hear you look just like so-and-so so often. That's that's hilarious. Okay, so who's one of your best friends is my doppelganger. Yeah, his name's Pat. I won't, I won't use his last name because I don't know okay. if he'll want me to. But uh, yeah, his name's Pat. Um, I think he, I'm pretty sure he follows me on Twitter. He might. I'm pretty sure he has a Twitter. Right. Um, I'll, I'll but yeah, him. I'll have to send you a picture of him because when I showed um, your picture to my wife, my wife's like, "Oh my god! Like, is that him? Is that Pat?" That's so I'm like, funny. No, no, no. That's that's James. Yeah, that that, yeah. that get, I actually get that more than you would think. It's it's really weird. Um, okay, cool. Uh, actually, yeah, I've been getting it my entire life. I used to be compared to the lead singer of the Bare Naked Ladies a lot when I was a kid, which is kind of weird. Page. I guess he's way older yep. than me. I don't. Oh yeah, they're Canadian, aren't they? Yep, Toronto, okay. I yeah, believe. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, there's a lot of good music that comes out of Canada. I've noticed. Um, anyway, we're rambling at this point, so why don't we go? Because <laughs> I I haven't had dinner yet, and I'm getting I'm getting hungry and delirious. I really appreciate your time. Why don't you plug plug what you want to plug, and then uh, and then we can close out. Sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, the book is Second Story Work. You can check it out. It's on, available on Amazon. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Facebook and Instagram as author Josh Sabalski. I am on Twitter as uh, end underscore dewars. So that's N-D underscore D-E-W-A-R-S. Uh, I just wanted Scott Horton to follow me. So I changed my name to that. He ended up <laughs> following me eventually. So, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, so... Uh, I got a podcast coming out in January, Second Story Work. You can actually follow my channel on YouTube. It is up. I think I have like four followers so far. My mom's probably okay, cool. one of them. I'll throw, uh, I'll but throw yeah, you can follow me too. on there. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. Thanks again. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. (laughs) 